Well, if you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 113. Psalm 113. It's also on the screen. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sits them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Well, have you, have you ever wondered why we sing when we meet together on a Sunday? Uh, maybe you've been in church all your life and you just think, well, that's, that's what we do. when that's what Christians do when they meet together on a Sunday. Um, but just imagine someone coming into church for the first time. Maybe that is you. I don't know any of you who are here. But imagine someone coming into church for the first time. And suddenly everyone all at once um, gets up and they start singing. Uh, people of varying musical abilities, musical interests are all singing together. And then if you come week after week, you realize that there's one theme to everything they're singing. It's all about this God of the Bible. There isn't really um, a comparison outside church that I can think of. Maybe the closest thing would be a football stadium to that kind of, to that kind of singing. But So why do Christians sing? That's the question I want to begin with. Why do Christians sing? Those of us who would call ourselves Christians, it's worth us asking this question. Why should we sing? And why on earth do we have that have singing so central to um, part of uh, Sunday, but to part of our lives? And if you're here for the first time, or um, if you maybe are listening, listen to this recording later on, or you're, you're, um, and you're considering the claims of Jesus still, well, a question for you might be, well, if Christians are singing, if Christian, why should I join in? What's the point in joining in all this singing to God? Why should we sing praise to God? That's the question that the writer of our Psalms, in some ways, is trying to address. The writer of Psalm 113 is ask, answering that question, why on earth should we sing praise to God? Why on earth should we join in? Um, Psalm 113 is part of a series of psalms that either begin or end with that phrase, praise the Lord, which is hallelujah in Hebrew. Um, they're all um, they're called the hallelujah psalms. Um, anyway, this psalm was written to be part of the worship of ancient Israel um, and a psalm that encourages and calls the people of God to join in the praise of God. In some ways, it's not just to instruct people to sing, but the aim of the, of the psalm was to move people's hearts to want to sing to God, to want to praise him. And so in some ways, that's our aim for this morning. Now, not that we'll just join in the praise of God, but that our hearts will be moved to want to praise him. So um, three points as we look through this psalm. First of all, praise the Lord for he is worthy of praise. Uh, first, a brief note on singing, because Psalm 113 is, is a song, isn't it? It's not a chant. It's not something you just read. Why don't we just read this psalm? What's so special about singing? Well, in short, singing not only expresses the truth, but it also, you might say, excites our emotions to feel the truth. 
um, very often in the Christian life, I don't know whether you find this, our feelings don't align with the truth. Uh, so we might turn up on a Sunday uh, and, you, and we know that we should rejoice in God. Maybe we're singing a, a song that speaks about rejoicing in God, but all of our feelings feel the opposite. Maybe we've had a difficult week. Maybe it's been hectic bringing, uh, wrangling the kids and bringing them along to church. And our hearts aren't, don't really feel in it. Um, and maybe, maybe the last thing you want to do sometimes feels like singing praise to God. Maybe you're in, in chronic pain. Maybe there's just been the death of a loved one. For, maybe you're suffering for various reasons. And we think, well, how, that doesn't really fit with how I feel. Well, our psalmist this morning would say, whatever, whatever um, is going on, we should try to sing anyway. Because singing is something that's quite special. It helps to focus our minds. It moves our hearts. The very act of singing, for example, um, how deep the Father's love for us, for example, helps, to, helps our minds to think and to focus on God's love. As we sing Psalm 51, as David confesses his sin, and we sing along with that, Oh my God, have mercy on me. It helps us to call to mind and to um, grieve our sin and confess our sin. Singing is powerful. And so can I encourage you to sing even when you don't feel like it, especially, you might say, when you don't feel like it. But the question that this psalm raises isn't just why should we sing, but why should we sing praise to God? And that's really our main focus. Why should we sing praise to God? And first of all, it's because he is worthy of praise. And we praise the things that we think are great. Um, so, for example, when um, there was the coronation, 20 million people um, watched, um, well, either watched the coronation in person or on TV. Um, a big crowd testified to that. People said, this is a great thing. This is something that we want to pay attention to. Uh, maybe Charles was a bit disappointed that an even greater number of people turned up for the Queen's funeral, 28 million people. Um, but one example particularly sticks in my mind um, was the recent Women's World Cup. Um, England didn't win the final, um, but while England didn't, yeah, didn't make that historic win, the thing that was historic was the number of people who watched the match. 1.98 million people watched the World Cup in total, and over 14 million people um, were watching that final on TV. And the numbers of people was historic because it showed that women's football was being taken seriously, that people thought that this is something that should um, be given attention, that was worthy of praise. Now, in a far greater way, Psalm 113 is making a similar argument. Um, the first few verses are saying that God is worthy of praise by the size of the crowd. Look at all the people who are praising God. So first of all, this is a party that would clearly burst any stadium um, because everyone is invited. Uh, we don't quite see it in verse 1. It just says, praise the Lord. But that's actually a plural. Um, everyone praise the Lord. If we were um, in the um, American South, you might, you might say, y'all praise the Lord. This is an invitation to everyone to come and give praise to God. Every person from every nation, no one is excluded, male and female, people from every language and nation. And this isn't just a short 24-hour event. This is The praise of God is to continue for all time. And the psalmist is clearly thinking more than just a Sunday. Um, he says, verse 2, let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. And God doesn't just want us to praise him uh, for a few hours a week. His praise will endure 
for all eternity. And we're to join in that praise for all time. And third, the praise of God isn't just for one place. Verse three, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now, we could be talking about time again, but um, people who know Hebrew better than me say this is probably talking about um, everywhere the, the, the warmth of the sun hits, as it were. So from the place where it rises to the place where it sets, all peoples, all nations, every patch of earth that is touched by the sun, all of these places are under God's, are under God's rule. All of these places are created by him. And all peoples and all places should be praising him. All people, all time, all place. It's a, it's a big crowd of celebration. And that's because of who's at the center of it. I don't know if you noticed um, the repetition in verses 1 and 2 and 3. Um, the name that's at the center of it. The Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It's like, a, it's like the chant um, of the people at the, at the heart of this psalm. Um, the Lord there in capital letters in our Bible, that's the, um, that's the personal name of God. Um, it's Yahweh in Hebrew, the name that God gives his people. Um, it's personal. It's, it's filled with promise. It's the name that tells the people, this is our God and we are his people. And it's a name that's also loaded with meaning. So if I say Noah you immediately think he built the ark. If I say Hadrian, you probably think he built the wall. If I said Boris, you might say he had a party. <laughs> um, but you say Yahweh to an Israelite, and their mind would start popping with all the things that God has done, all the things that he had meant to their, to their fathers, all the things that he had done throughout history. And that's the, what the psalmist then goes on to do in verses 4 to 9. He tells us all about Yahweh, all about the Lord, the God who is worthy of all this praise. So first we thought, praise the Lord for he's worthy of praise. Second now, praise the Lord for he is highly exalted and yet he stoops down low. First, let's look at how he's highly exalted. Did you notice that in the language of verses four to six? The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who sits enthroned on high? who stoops down to look on the heavens and earth. Again and again, the psalmist is telling us how elevated, exalted, how great and high God is. Now, God isn't a physical being, so these verses are a metaphor, aren't they? They're not telling us about um, God's location, but his status. Um, you might want to think about it this way. Um, kind of ancient civilizations, I mean, we see the, the remnants of the monuments now. You see pyramids, you see the ziggurats that the Babylonians built. Um, you see the Aztec pyramids. Um, they stuck their temples of their gods at the top. That was to symbolize that they're great. I mean, even kings and rulers, you see the throne is up on a few steps, don't you? Um, to show that this monarch is, is great, is worthy of praise in some way. And the psalmist is using that, that kind of imagery um, to show us, to show God's status. God is the one who is high up not just set up on a few steps, not just at the top of a temple. God is the one who is above the heavens, who has the whole earth mapped out before him. Everything is created by him. Everything is under his rule. And God's um, royal power, his authority over all creation, um, sometimes theologians refer to that as his transcendence, God being above all things. And it's something we see from the very first pages of the Bible. Um, when 
from the beginning when there's nothing. And then God just speaks. God, who is above all things, speaks and brings everything into existence by the word of his command. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by, the, by his breath, uh, by the breath of his mouth all their host. And we spoke to the kids about how that imagery that Isaiah employs, that God is just so big, he can, um, can measure out the heavens with the breadth of his hand. He can pour out the waters, measure the waters in the hollow of his hand. All of that is describing how, how great, how big God is, how he is high above, how he is transcendent. But God's transcendence, God's greatness, while it sets him apart from creation, it doesn't make him um, untouchable, as it were. Um, so it sets him apart in the sense that there is no one like God. He is the creator. Um, we are creatures. Um, one of the first three astronauts to fly uh, around the moon uh, was a guy called Jim Lavelle. And he um, recounts a story about how when um, the Earth first came into view in the little porthole of the space capsule, um, he put his thumb out and he realized that with his thumb, he could cover all, I guess back then, about, about six billion people who were on the world, all the people he had ever known, all the places that were dear to him, in that moment were all just covered uh, by his thumb because it was so far away. And you might say that that's kind of the God's eye view in verse 6. God is so big and transcendent, he, he looks far down to the earth below. Compared to God, all nations are like a drop in the bucket. He is highly exalted, he is worthy of praise. Uh, but the psalmist doesn't stop there. The psalmist doesn't just stop by saying God is worthy of praise because um, God's transcendence, transcendence doesn't mean he is absent from creation. Um, you might, people might sometimes have that view of God. God just created the world and then he, he left it. He let the world go off spinning. That's called a deist view of God, a God who's absent from this creation. But that's not the God of the Bible. God is... God created the world, but he's also intimately involved with the world. His authority, his control, his glory and power don't make him um, separate from this world, unknowable, but rather they mean he is intimately involved with the world and with our lives. And we see that um, as the psalmist shows how the exalted God is the one who stoops down low. Do you notice that? It's there in verse 6. He stoops down to look at the heavens and the earth. And then we see it again in verses 7 to 9. God is the one, the exalted one, who comes down and he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sits them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as the happy mother of children. The God who looks far down is the one who is intimately involved in our lives. And he doesn't just pay attention to I don't know, national politics and to governments and to celebrities, the people that catch the headlines and catch people's eyes in the street. God notices the lowest rungs of society. Do you notice the people who are emphasized there? The poor, the needy, the childless. God notices the people that are forgotten by society, the, um, the homeless person maybe huddled a bit in, under a shop door, under some cardboard boxes that we just walk past so easily. God notices the woman who is um, maybe stuck at home and 
she feels forgotten there. Her relatives, her friends, she gets a, a phone call once a month, maybe once a week, if she's lucky. She feels forgotten. God notices the people who are deemed untouchable by society. I mentioned I grew up in Nepal where um, there is a whole caste system and some people are deemed untouchable. I remember walking down the streets and there are rubbish tips by the sides of the streets and seeing some kids picking through the rubbish to find things to recycle side by side um, with the stray dogs. And God notices them. God notices the people who are marginalized, the people who are deemed as nothing, the people who are deemed as less than human. God notices them. And he sees them as valuable. And it's maybe it's not maybe it's not as big of a thing in this day and age, but for the psalmist to say in verse nine that he he settles the barren woman in her home. It's not just that um, God notices the person who is unable to have children. In so many societies, that's a stigma. That someone who can't have children is they're cursed. They've done something wrong. I mean, people can even people even now, even in the UK, can find that shameful. It's a, always a very difficult thing as well. God sees them. God notices that pain. That's that's maybe unshareable. That other people might not understand. But God doesn't just look, he acts. And that's our third point. Praise the Lord who raises up. Verses 6 to 9 are powerful pictures of God noticing, but also of God raising up the lowly. Do you notice he raises the poor from the dust. He makes the needy um, from the needy from the ash heap. He sits them with princes. It's the stuff of Hollywood and Bollywood, of, of Aladdin and Slumdog Millionaire. God taking people um, from nothing and making them well, enthroning them, making them something. And um, we see God doing this throughout the Bible. He takes Joseph from the, from the pit of prison and he makes him Pharaoh's right-hand man. He takes David, this, this unknown shepherd, and he makes, them Israel's greatest, makes him Israel's greatest king. Maybe most iconic of all, he takes the people of Israel who are slaves in Egypt and he rescues them and says, you are going to be my precious possession. It's going to be through you that I make my name known throughout all the world. It's going to be through you that I bring my forever king, Jesus. God is in the business, you might say, of raising up the lowly. That example in verse 9 of giving the barren woman a home, we see examples of that throughout the Bible. Um, Abraham's wife, Sarah, um, who was unable to have children, and then he gives, um, God gives her Isaac. Um, you, um, then you might say, well, Jacob's wife, Rebecca. Um, you might know the story of Hannah and Samuel at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Hannah, who, um, whose um, husband had two wives and his other wife, I mean, it's just abysmal, it's terrible. They had two wives. The other wife was mocking her that she couldn't have children. Then God answered that prayer and gave, him, gave her Samuel or Elizabeth um, was given John the Baptist. You might, God's in the business of raising up the lowly in that way. That's, of course, not saying that God will always answer prayers in that way. Those are exceptions though that show God's character that show his heart no wonder the psalmist says who is like the Lord our God who's a God who does this kind of thing what other God what other celebrity or politician or or royalty is so exalted is so powerful and great and yet cares about the nobodies Maybe there are some, maybe there are people who, maybe someone here is a somebody and I don't know, but I'm just to, I'll guess that most of us are probably nobodies. 
When the rich and famous do mix with the poor, that normally makes the headlines. I remember a year or two ago that Prince William was selling um, the big issue. And he only has to sell a big issue for an hour or two. And suddenly he's across all of the um, magazines and all the newspapers and on all of the, um, all the headlines on the, on the Internet. Well, God did more than that. The creator of the thing of all things became a creature. And you think that kind of thing would be breaking news. But it didn't, even, um, it didn't even spark any interest. It wasn't even on the local WhatsApp group, you might say. When God became man, he became a baby. He was born in a shed. He was born out of wedlock. And he went further still. As we read in Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. The highest of high became the lowest of low. And he didn't do it to promote a charity. He didn't do it um, to raise his own ego or his own standing, as it were. You see, by nature, God did it because we're spiritually poor. By nature, each one of us, the Bible says, is, is spiritually bankrupt, you might say. Um, we've got nothing good to offer an exalted God. God is worthy of all praise. And yet, most of the time, we don't give our praise to God. We praise other things we think are great. We praise ourselves. You could say our, our hearts are like a bank vault of stolen praise taken from God who deserves it. Every time we live our, live our lives without reference to him, every time we choose to go our way and not God's ways. And this morning, some of us might feel very aware of our spiritual poverty, of how we fall short of God's commands, of how we've wandered away from him. You might feel... We might feel that. We might, maybe this week we know that we've fallen yet again into the same sin. We've lost our temper. and We've said things that we wish we could have taken back or whatever it is. The good news of the gospel, though, is that Jesus came for you. Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't come for the perfect people. He came for the people who recognize their spiritual poverty, the people who recognize their low, who recognize that they're nothing, that they are there to be passed by. The God who is seated on high stooped down, not for the rich righteous, but for sinners who recognize their poverty. In Romans 5 verse 8, Paul writes, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died us and that's a promise for you if you recognize your poverty if you recognize you need him then the promise is that christ came for you that jesus died in your place there will probably be others though who who aren't ready yet to admit that spiritual poverty because we're all naturally proud aren't we we all think well I, i'm not as bad as that person or i'm not as bad as i could have been this week there are all these things i could have said there are all these things i could have done that i didn't and even if we do admit that we need God's help, often we think, well, I have something to offer. I'm not a completely a lost cause. However, if we, I guess just to be, totally, to be totally blunt, if we weren't helpless, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Can I urge you to be honest with yourselves? Do we see our hearts as the... As not just an empty bank vault, but as a bank vault of that stolen praise. Do we see that there is nothing worthy in there? That all our good works are tainted by sin? Everything is stained 
and a stain won't rub out. But God can deal with that if we repent. If we come to him, the exalted king became low to take our sin, to deal with that, to to pay that debt on the cross. In 1 John 1 verse 9, um, we read this promise that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus not only pays our debts, he also raises us up. God doesn't just bring us back to zero. He he raises up his people to, to make them children of God, to make us part of God's family. That's the, that's the plan of God through all eternity, taking people who have wandered away from him, people who, have, who, have, who are lost, who are far away, and raising them up through the power of Jesus Christ, forgiving their sin and giving us the status of being part of God's family, children loved by a heavenly father. God is worthy of praise by all people and all time and all places. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the exalted God, stooped down low so that you and I, sinners like you and I, can be raised up. And God will be praised uh, through all time by all people in all places. Um, In the last book of the Bible, the apostle John has a vision in Revelation. What does he see? He sees Christ on the throne and around it. He says, a people from every nation and tribe and tongue, and they're singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. The praise of God will endure through all eternity. God will be praised through all eternity. Why? Because Christ went down, because he lowered himself so that we might be raised up, because Christ gave himself that our sins might be forgiven. That is the song of eternity. And so really just a question I'd want to leave with you as we, as we close is will we join in? Have we joined in? Will we praise God in song? Yes. But more importantly, will we praise him with our lives? Will, we, will every minute of our lives, wherever we are, all of our lives, will it be dedicated to that God in worship? The God who has given Christ for us that we might know him, that we might be raised up. God is worthy of praise.